0: All right, good morning, familia. Good morning. Today we continue uh, in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and if you have been here, you know that we have been walking uh, through the last week of Jesus. And actually, we have been spending a lot of time in the last Tuesday before Jesus goes to the cross. Actually, everything from chapter 21 all the way to chapter 26 is a description of everything that was happening in the Tuesday... Uh, before Jesus goes to the cross. Now, if you were here last week, you may remember that Jesus is having this encounter with the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. Right? The Pharisees were the religious people of the time, the Herodians were kind of the politicians of the time, and the Sadducees were kind of the scholars of the time. And every single one of them is asking Jesus these uh, provocative questions to, to try to discredit Jesus before everyone that was following him and hearing him. And all of these things are happening while he is in the temple, in the area of the Gentiles. What is interesting though is that after uh, every answer he gives to the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees, there's a word that appears twice synonyms. The first word is that comes in chapter 22, verse 22, when after people hearing how Jesus responds, he says that people were amazed. And then, as the narrative continues, Jesus responds again, and in verse 33 says that people were astonished by Jesus. What is interesting is that those two words can be translated as wonder. Meaning that after Jesus is having this interaction with these people, somehow Jesus is fi- uh, people are finding Jesus' answers, and Jesus as a person, wonderful. Now, I want you to pay attention to that word because it is from that word that I'm going to, based on that word, I'm going to build my, my entire sermon today. And I want to make the argument that that wonderful thing, finding Jesus wonderful, is what makes a difference in the type of relationship you, you have with Jesus. I'm going to make the argument today that if you are here and you are not a believer, it's precisely because you have not found Jesus Wonderful. I want to make the argument that part of the reason why you became a Christian, if you are a Christian, is because you found Jesus wonderful. But I also want to make the argument that if you are not growing in your relationship with Jesus, most likely is because you are forgetting that Jesus is wonderful. So this is my argument, plain and simple. Unless you find Jesus wonderful, delightful, pleasing Great, brilliant, perfect, ideal, magnificent, breathtaking, and amazing, which are all the synonyms for the word wonder, not only it will be really hard for you to become a Christian, but also to grow in your Christianity. Therefore, I think that the word wonder is the antidote against religious behavior See, the religious, religious people do religious things just because they're trying to earn God. But you don't, when you find Jesus wonderful, you do those things, but because you find God delightful. I want to make the argument that wonder is the antidote against idolatry. Why would you pursue things that are not God and treat them like if they're God, if you have a God that is magnificent? I want to make the argument that wonder is the antidote against moralism. The moralist is a person that does good for good's sake. The moralist is a person that does good to feel good about him or herself. But I want to make the argument that if you find Jesus wonderful, you will do good because God deserves it. See, I want to make the argument that wonder is the antidote against spiritual apathy. You know what that means? That means that you come to church and you do religious things and you read your Bible and you serve and you worship and you do all these beautiful things that God calls us to do but you don't do them out of a sense of joy because you find this God we have perfect and sufficient but you do it because you just do it. I want to make the argument that wonder is the antidote against sin altogether. You know why I say that? Because at the end of the day you and I We are all wonder-driven people. You know what that means? That whatever you find wonderful, whatever you find beautiful, whatever you find delightful, that you will surrender to. And part of the reason why I struggle with sin and you struggle with sin is because there are so many other things that we find more wonderful than Jesus. We are wonder-driven people. So, my intention today for the next two hours (laughs) is to help you see and understand that there is a reason why, throughout church history and why the Bible, in the Bible, you find people finding God amazing even amid persecution, pain, suffering, and loneliness. I want you to find Jesus as wonderful as the people of the Bible found Jesus wonderful. Amen? So we're going to talk about two things today. The wonder of who he is and the wonder uh, of who we need. So I need you to do me a favor. Look at the person next to you and ask like a serious question. Do you find Jesus wonderful? Go ahead. All right. So how many of you guys feel uncomfortable when I ask you to ask something to the person next to you? Yeah? Good. We're going to keep doing it then. (laughs) Point number one, the wonder of who he is. So if you remember last week, part of the sermon, part of what we talked about and we saw in the scripture is that the Pharisees come and ask Jesus this question, which is the greatest commandment. And then Jesus responds in such a way that the Pharisees had nothing else to say. But now Jesus is turning the table, and now Jesus is going to be the one asking the questions. So we find, for example, in verses 41 and 42, that Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now, I want you to keep in mind the first question, what do you think about the Messiah? Because I'm going to come back to that question at the end of the sermon. But the question that I want us to pay attention to right now is the second question, whose son is he? Now, there's a reason, obviously, why Jesus is asking this question, because he wants to prove the Pharisees, the religious people, the people that knew the quote-unquote, they knew the Bible, he wants to prove to them that even though they thought they knew anything and everything about the Messiah, they knew the Bible, but they did not know enough about the Messiah. Now, for those of you that are new to the church or new to Christianity, the word Messiah is a Hebrew name found in the Old Testament that means the anointed one or the chosen one, meaning that the Messiah was the person that God the Father would choose to bring salvation and deliver his people uh, from their slavery. Now, the New Testament then translates that Hebrew word to Greek for Christos. It's not Christos. Christos, which means Christ, and that's why Jesus is called Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Now, we know that because we have the New Testament, but up until this point, the Pharisees either don't want to see it, or they can't see it. So, Jesus asked this question, whose son is the Messiah? Now, you got to keep in mind that the Pharisees, they're proud people. They're proud of their knowledge. They're proud of their title. They're proud of their reputation. They actually see themselves as spiritually um, superior people to everyone else. And one of the evidences when someone is full of pride, and I, and I, and I could say this with confidence because this is me sometimes. One of the evidences that a person is full of pride is that they're so quick to answer. So Jesus asked the question, whose son is the Messiah? And they replied in verse 42, 42, the son of David. Really quick. Now, this is interesting, though. What what they said is, is right. Like, they knew that the Messiah was supposed to come from David. They knew that the Messiah was supposed to be a man that was also a king that came from the line of David, the king. So that's not the problem with the answer, though. The problem with the answer is that it's an incomplete answer. Once again, the Messiah did need to come from the family of David. The Messiah had to be a man king that came from the family of David. But part of the reason why I know that the answer is incomplete is because when the Bible talks of the Messiah, it's not just a description of a man, and it's not just a description of a king, but the Messiah, according to the Bible, had to be a prophet, a priest, a king, and God, all at the same time. See, that's what they don't know. Well, that's what at least they are choosing to ignore, or that's what they can't see. The proper description of the Messiah, according to the Old Testament, was that he had to be a man, king, prophet, priest, and God. Now, Jesus is going to do something magnificent here. Because he's going to question their theology. And he's going to confront them with the things that they think they know. So look at what Jesus says in verse 43. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? This is the question. Jesus is saying, you are right. The Messiah must come from the family of David. But then explain to me why is it that David, in the power of the Spirit, calls His son, God. Now, these people are like, what? That never happened. You're a false prophet. Where'd you get that from? Oh, but see, Jesus knows the Bible much, much better than these people know the Bible. And he's about to quote. Psalm 110, which is the psalm that appeared the most in the entire Old Testament. And every time it appears in the New Testament is to talk about Jesus. Psalm 110 was a messianic psalm, meaning that it was a psalm written to describe the Messiah. Listen up, church. And that psalm was written by David. That means that David himself is giving us a description of the Messiah. So Jesus quotes this psalm to the Pharisees. Look at what it says in verse 44. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I'll put your enemies under your feet. So you cannot miss this one. You cannot miss this. Because this is David writing and talking about the Messiah. who's supposed to be his son. So I'll break it down for you. Ready? This gets a little technical, so you gotta stay with me. David says, paraphrasing, I overheard something in the spirit, in which Lord number one is talking to Lord number two. And Lord number one is telling Lord number two to sit at my right hand and I'll put my your enemies under your feet. Now we know because of the New Testament, the Lord number one in the text is God the Father. And we know because of the New Testament that Lord number two is is God the Son, Jesus Christ. And he overhears in the power of the Spirit, God the Father telling God the Son that he has the place of highest honor and authority in this entire creation. How do I know that? Because that's what sitting on, on my right hand means. Whoever was on your right hand means that that person is the most important person, the most brilliant person, the greater person, the better person in the entire world. In, at least in the, entire, uh, in the presence of whoever was there. So God the Father tells God the Son, you are the best. You are the greatest. No one like you. No one deserves, deserves the honor you deserve. No one has the authority you have. You are the best of the best. And then Jesus comes back. And says to the Pharisees, in verse 45, if then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Man, listen, I I do this all the time, but I imagine what people feel. And I imagine what people show. So here you have a group of men that really believe that they're superior to everyone else. And they answered the first question, Son of David! And then Jesus comes with this, and I could almost see these people like, uh, 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 what? <laughs> because that's what happens when we're full of pride, man, we fall super fast. So and so profound is what Jesus just said and explain to these experts of the Bible that they have, they have nothing else to say. Verse 46. No one can say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Actually, the Bible is going to show us, because of the other Gospels, that it's about this time in which the uh, Pharisees decided to kill Jesus. And there's a lesson here for us to learn, especially if you are playing around with Christianity. See, whenever we are confronted with the truth of the Bible, whenever we are confronted with Jesus, either your heart gets softer or your heart gets harder. No one stays the same. Let me say that again. Whenever we are confronted with the person of Jesus... Either your heart gets softer, and you believe in him, or your heart gets harder, and then you do really dumb things, like killing the Savior. So this is what he just proved to them. That the Messiah was supposed to be a man, king, and God, and also a priest. The only one of those that we don't have here in the text is the prophet. Jesus is teaching these experts of the law that the Savior, the Messiah, had to be 100% man. That he had to be a priest. That he had to be a king and at the same time 100% God. And from this point on, I want to give you five reasons why those four things is, what makes, is part of what makes Jesus so wonderful. And why is it that Christianity is different to any other religion in the world? And why is it that we should exalt our Lord and elevate our Lord and magnify our Lord? Because there is no one like him. He is the only one that is 100% man, the best priest, the best king, and God at the same time. Only Jesus. Ready? Five things. And I need you to pay attention because at the end of the service, I'm going to ask you to repeat those back to me. Amen? Do me a favor. Person next to you, you better pay attention, say. All right, come back. Number one. It is because Jesus is the God-man. The reason why we know what it means to have a God that loves us. The reason why Jesus is God-man is the main reason why we know what it means to have a God that loves us. See, there's a difference between loving someone from afar. And yet in Jesus we have a a, a God that becomes a a human being to love us up close and personal. Not only we have that, but we have a God... That was willing to humble himself, to empty himself, to become a tiny, needed human being in order to love you. See, only Christianity has this picture of a God, omniscient, omnipresent, amazing God that is willing to empty himself to look for the people that didn't even want him. Only Christianity offers that. You know why Jesus, you know what makes Jesus so wonderful? He is the God man. That not only is the ultimate example of love, but he defines what love is. Reason number 1. Reason number 2. Because Jesus is the God man, is the reason why we know that when we are with Jesus, we are in the best place to be. And everything else is foolishness say it again it is because jesus is the god man the reason why we know that to be with jesus is the best place to be so for example hebrews chapter one talks about jesus as being a man as god as well when he says that jesus is the radiance of god's glory the exact representation of his being in other words, if you want to see God the Father, you got to see Jesus. Because he's exactly how the Father is. The exact imprint, the same nature, the same character, everything the same. Colossians makes the same argument. It says that Jesus, in Jesus we find the fullness of God. Same essence, same same nature. Different person, one God. So I'm going to walk you through why this is such an amazing thing for us as Christians. Ready? Look at here. If God the Father is omnipotent, means that He's got all power over everything, Jesus is is omnipotent, meaning that He's powerful when things go right and He's powerful when things go wrong. That He's powerful whether you can see it and He's powerful whether you can, even if you can't see it. That part of his nature is to be powerful. Therefore, you are always secure. If God the Father is omniscient, then that means that Jesus is omniscient. He knows our past. He knows our present. And he knows our future. He knows everything there is to know. There's nothing he does not know. You know why that's important? Because as Christians, we know that we worship a God that could never be caught by surprise. You know what that means? That if he knows everything in the past, in the present, and the future, he could never say like, oops, what happened? He knows it all. And if he knows it all, then he's also the reason why he's uh, omnipresent. If God is omnipresent, God the Father, then Jesus is omnipresent. Meaning that he is present at all times. Jesus is present with the Father at that moment, but in the Spirit, he's also present with us at all times. That means that in anything and everything you go through, you are never alone, even if you feel lonely, if you're a Christian. You are are truly never alone. If God the Father is sovereign, he accomplished everything by the power of his will, and he's good. Everything he does and allows is good. And he's providential. He moves everything to accomplish his plans. Then that means that Jesus is sovereign, is good, and providential. You know what that means? That as a Christian, you could never say that Jesus is not in control. You could never say that everything that God allows or brings is always for his glory and your good. And you could never doubt that everything that the Lord allows or brings, he's working and using it providentially. There's no mistakes in the kingdom of God. This is what we get when we have Jesus as God-man. This is the security we have. This is Jesus as God-man is the ultimate place of rest, the ultimate place of joy, the ultimate place of security is the best place to be. Don't you think it's foolishness to think that we could find that somewhere else? Reason number three. Because Jesus is the God-man, And also a king. He's got to be the best king. See when you look at the Old Testament. The responsibility of the king was threefold. They had to provide. They had to protect. And they had to guide. And if you know anything about the, the history of the world. You know that we have never had a king like that. And yet our king. The God man king. Not only because he's powerful, and not only because he wants to do something, not only because it's a good idea, but because he can. He can protect, he can provide, and he can guide. No king like him. Why put your trust in other kings? Why put your things in things that will pass away? Number four, because God is the God man, and he's not just a king, but he's a priest. That means that we have someone that fully understands and supports us in our struggle. So Psalm 110 in verse 4 continues the narrative about the Messiah and in Psalm 110 verse 4 talks about Jesus as being the priest. And I don't know how much you know about the priest, but the priest had one responsibility. Dual responsibility, but one responsibility here. The priest was supposed to represent humanity before God. So the priest had to go once a year and sacrifice on behalf of the people on behalf of their sins to be forgiven. But one of the qualifications, if you will, for this priest is that this priest understood the people that he was representing. Why? Because he went through the same thing his people uh, will go through. He knew what it means to have pain and a struggle and sin. He knew all of that stuff. So what is the difference then? To, uh, what is the difference between a regular priest? And God meant priest, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4 says that this high priest, Jesus, sympathizes with our weaknesses in every respect, because in every respect he was tempted and yet without sin. And this is what that means that there's nothing you go through that he doesn't understand, there's no pain you go through that he doesn't understand. There's no struggle you experience that he doesn't understand. And that even when you are being tempted, even that he understands, but even more than you. So C.S. Lewis will make the argument that we don't know the weight of sin unless we have resisted and won. Guess who's the only person that has resisted temptation and not surrendered to sin? Jesus. Therefore, the only person that can truly provide what you need when you are being tempted, not only he understands you, has the power to get you out, is Jesus. Jesus is the God-man priest that knows what to say, how to say it, and when to say it because he is your high priest. Number five. Because Jesus is the God-man that is also a priest, then he is the only way for us to be forgiven. So the priest, once a year, the whole process was super interesting because once a year, he would bathe himself and then grab a lamb that had, that was perfect lamb, and he will go before the presence of, of the Father, and he will sacrifice the lamb, and the forgive, the sins will be forgiven, right? Every year, once a year. Hebrews chapter seven says though that the, that the priest had to do that every year, every year, every year, because every year you had to, someone had to, so animal had to die for, for the sins of people. But Hebrews 7 says something different about Jesus, though. It says that he is the man, but that he's also a priest. He goes before the Father on behalf of his people. But not only that he is the priest, but that he's also the sacrifice. He's called the Lamb of God. But it's a sacrifice, not like the high priest sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that is completely different to everything else. And this is where the word to sit makes a difference. To sit at the right hand of the Father. And I want you not only to understand what Jesus did as a priest, but to see it. That when Jesus goes to the cross, he doesn't go like one of the regular priests. He goes to the cross as a man, 100% man representing you. And he goes as a a king to defend you and protect you. But that he goes as a priest and as a lamb. And when Jesus sits at the right hand of the father, is to say, my sacrifice was enough. There's nothing else to do. What needed to be accomplished for my people to be forgiven, I already accomplished. Done deal. It is finished. The is tie. But then you're still sinning, and the devil goes to the father and says, "Do you see Hannibal? He's still sinning, and he still struggles." And Jesus sitting down turns around and says, "Yeah, I already died for that. Sin. I already died for that sin. I'm sitting down." And the devil comes back again to the father and says, Look at all these people wander away from him. Look at how they betray their savior, the man, God, king, priest, and lamb. Look at what they continue to do. And Jesus turns around and says, I also died for that sin. I'm sitting down. And he never gets up. And it's from his position of sitting down that we see this 100% man, priest, king, lamb, that is also the lion of Judah. You know why? Because he destroyed all the enemies. Satan is destroyed, sin is destroyed. Come, the nation is destroyed, death is destroyed, and Jesus looks around and says, "Take that, Satan! You got nothing against my people." Amen. Isn't that great? So the question we got to ask is: So what? If this is true. If Jesus as God-man is the ultimate example of love, the ultimate place of rest, joy, and security, if Jesus as God-man is the God-man king, the ultimate provider and protector and guide, if Jesus is the God-man that is priest, the ultimate counselor, the ones that understand and support, and if Jesus is the God-man priest and lamb of God and lion of of Judah, where you find forgiveness and salvation, so what? Point number two, in three minutes. (laughs) You remember how I asked you to keep in mind the question, what do you think about the Messiah? I think that depending on how you answer that question, is where you could see where you are in your relationship with Jesus. What do you think about the Messiah? You remember how I told you that we are wonder-driven people? We, we function when we find something wonderful. And we're seeking for wonder somewhere, somehow. We, we are starving for wonder, somehow, someplace. We are like the Little Mermaid. <laughs> see, three weeks ago, my family and I went to, watch to, to see the newer version of the Little Mermaid. And I loved it. Amazing production. Loved it. And if you're not familiar with this story, um, let me give it to you cuz it's super spiritual. Uh, <laughs> it's this young girl that lives in this beautiful world underwater. And she has a beautiful voice and she has everything she truly needs. She's the daughter of a king. But for some reason even that world with all the perfection and that position is not enough. What she wants is what she wants is the world the world outside the water. And she's got this obsession with the world outside the the water in which she's collecting all these things and saving all these things that remind her of this world that is not her world. And she's looking for wonderful things out there all the time. And in the midst of this search, she finds also a wonderful man. And she falls in love with in love with these wonderful men to the point that she is willing to give up everything she is and everything she has for this wonderful world and these quote unquote wonderful men. The one thing that she's willing to give up is her voice. And in a very typical Disney way, the story has a happy ending. So she becomes a human being. she is no longer a mermaid. And she recovers her voice, and she lives in this wonderful world, now living, about to get married with these wonderful men. And I'm sitting there thinking, what happens if that guy becomes an idiot? <laughs> what happened to the little mermaid? What is he going to do? You get in the water, you can't breathe underwater no more. <laughs> See, I am the little mermaid. And you are the little mermaid. Looking for a wonderful thing in places where you can find it. When we have it in Jesus The 100% man, 100% God. That is the ultimate priest, ultimate king, ultimate lamb, ultimate sacrifice, the Lion of Judah. Why are we going to keep on looking for wonderful things when we got the best thing in front of us? Yeah, again, glory. We are wonder... Dreaming people. My prayer is that we don't stop for any idiot guy until we find Jesus delightful and pleasing and great and brilliant and perfect and ideal and magnificent and breathtaking, simply amazing. Because our lamb is still sitting down saying, I already accomplished it all. The starvation must stop. You already have me. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful. that we have something so wonderful, so beautiful, so perfect, so sufficient, that compared to him, everything else looks like foolishness. Lord, we are wonder driven people. And sometimes we are starving Seeking for wonder in all the wrong places. By the power of your Spirit, allow us to see the magnitude, the beauty, the perfection of Jesus Christ. The God that became a man, the man that became a priest. The priest that became a lamb, the lamb that was a king, the king that is the lion of Judah. The lion of Judah, priest, king, man that is sitting at the right hand of the father, saying, "To "It is finished." Nothing else to accomplish. Nothing else to conquer, nothing else to prove. Jesus already defeated all of his enemies and are under his feet. And therefore, if we have placed our faith in him, all of our enemies are already under his feet. Death is defeated. Satan is defeated. And sin is defeated. Please help us see it. We pray for this in the name of Jesus and the churches.